Last time on Culture File, we went for a visit with Oxford-based anthropologist Veronica Strang, whose special area of interest is water in its many manifestations across cultures. She's been tracking how the personification of water from the flickering water beings of hunter-gatherer societies gradually ebbed under assaults from monotheistic religions and scientific control. In her book, Water Beings, From Nature Worship to the Environmental Crisis, she traces via Aboriginal societies in Australia through the hydraulic empires of the Nile and Indus Valley and into contemporary water policy, the many side effects of this disenchantment from gender inequality to environmental decline. The other important thing about water beings is that they tend to represent both genders. They're either androgynous, containing both genders in themselves, and very often they appear as twins. Uh, which is another way, or they have, or they're bicephalous, and, and so they they tend to be um, male and female, or have. Old, I mean, for example, you have mother and father rainbows in Australia and Africa. Uh, they tend sometimes to be the female aspect with a male sun god. So you would find that in South America, for example, uh, where you also have wonderful twin anacon giant anaconda beings. Um, but the point is really that this is also about changing gender relations and inequalities. So if you start off with hunter-gatherer societies, what you have are uh, political systems that are really quite flat. And this is a Durkheimian perspective. If you assume that your religious belief system echoes your political system, a, 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 a gerontocratic system in which elders all rule the community together, male and female alike, is very egalitarian in principle, maybe not entirely in practice. Um, and so what you also see is a divergence in that power so that you get class systems and you get a rise in male authority. And, and so what you also see with the changing form of water beings is that instead of being dual or multiple genders, you get a rising assertion of male divinities. So you can see this very clearly in the Greek pantheons, that there's a sort of emergence and the women tend to become, you know, demonised. So you get Medea, Medusa, all these wicked, powerful women who can turn people to stone and so forth. So your male culture hero is someone like St George, St Michael, who slays the dragon. Uh, and that's a sort of classic male culture hero story. But you see it permeating popular culture in Lord of the Rings, if you like, in, in Avatar. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a very sort of classic figure, as is, as is the evil witch and the overly powerful female figure. Uh, and, of course, you do have your female heroes as well, but they're an alternative. But I was thinking also the way that the culture heroes sometimes are the engineers in this in this particular process. So you have you know Archimedes on on one side, but you the the, the you know you the yeah yeah. You the great is one of those figures that moves from sort of being a legendary figure into a historic figure, and he becomes a culture hero by controlling the waters of China, and he's you know he symbolises that sort of appreciation of engineering which is interesting um, I mean I think I think it's important to understand that controlling water is very seductive it's very alluring to have control over this powerful element enchanting you said you know. yeah it's very enchanting and this of course is Al Alfred Gell's concept he talks about the enchantment of technology and if you look at how people talk about
about big dams. It's very ambivalent. You know, there's a lot of critique of how they impede systems and so forth. But there's also the people who build them love them. I mean, they've captured all this water. They've built this amazing thing. And you can see why they're proud of it. Uh, and, and people are proud of being able to act on the world. So when I interview miners up in North Queensland, they tell me how proud they are to have been able to extract and all this wonderful stuff from the ground and, and hold up the economy and so forth. And there is a sense of pride in, in being able to transform the world. How do we get the interests of non-human beings represented in decision-making processes? It's actually a very practical question. You know, we need to think about some kind of pan-species democracy that means that when we decide about transport or roads or housing or whatever developments, someone in that equation has the knowledge to say, and this is what it would mean for the different species in this catchment area. And this is what their needs and interests are. And that's the voice that is missing in our, in our decision-making. So I've proposed this notion of reimagined communities in which instead of just thinking about the human communities in a given area, we encompass the notion that there are many, many non-human communities and we think about ways to represent their needs, not just in environmental things, because that always gets sidelined, but in the real decision-making fora where we make decisions about housing and transport and economic practices. So if we had a systematic way of representing non-human beings across our decision-making processes, they'd at least have a chance of having their needs and interests considered one of the core ideas that the the water beings are involved with you know which we've touched upon a little bit there is the notion that we've begun to see the environment as a resource and we're talking about using all all the parts of it to make buildings or roads or whatever and and what you're suggesting is that there is a way of undoing our habit of seeing it as a resource but the religion of capitalism sort of forbids that in a way doesn't it well, those things are very intertwined. I mean, religious beliefs about dominion and capitalism sort of come hand in hand in terms of promoting that way of thinking. And even the word resource has a lot of baggage attached to it because it automatically frames things as assets and cost-effective. You know, that is that whole language of capitalism is all about um, value for money and how to value things in monetary terms. And it's a very narrow way of thinking that, that pushes us into decisions that are wholly exploitative and short-termist. And so I think questioning that kind of short-termism and the language that we're using is, is a useful place to start. So it sounds a little esoteric to say, well, how do we have pan-species democracy represent non-human rights and interests? But what it's shifting us towards, you know, it's a paradigmatic change in thinking that goes, well, actually, this is a world of sh a shared world of living species of which we are clearly the most able to manipulate it. But actually, we need to think of it as a, sh as a single shared world. I was talking there to Veronica Strang, author of Water Beings from Nature Worship to the Environmental Crisis, which is published by Reaction Books.